Hello and welcome to Nobody's Watching, a show about the benefits of music, singing and dancing. I'm Claudia, your host, and I'll be interviewing experts, amateur dancers and music lovers to collect stories and scientific research on the positive impact of music and dance. This first series is a collection of interviews with people who use music as a way to get themselves through the pandemic. We'll find out how these musical lockdown projects gave people structure, motivation, joy and connection with others. Today, I'm joined by Anna Doble, whose musical lockdown project was to listen to her collection of 300 vinyls in chronological order and document the process. Anna is a journalist. She's currently digital editor for the BBC World Service Programme, where she leads online journalism and social media strategy around podcasts, radio and video contents. In this episode, she tells us about the memories that her lockdown project unlocked for her. We talk about the intense connection between music and memory. We talk about how musical lockdown projects help us connect to people in a different way. And we talk about how the way in which we listen to music has evolved over time. At the end of the episode, we take a little detour and we talk about how Anna's incredible audience engagement work helps the hit crowd investigation podcast Death in Ice Valley win podcast of the year and best use of crowdsourcing or citizen journalism at the Drum Online Media Awards in 2019. Here is our conversation. Anna, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you, Claudia. Thank you. You have done a very interesting musical lockdown project where you listen to all the almost 300 of your vinyls. So I would love to ask you some questions about that. And to anyone listening, I will link this in the show notes, but I really recommend actually reading Anna's piece because it's just so beautifully written. And, you know, I think you get something different from listening to a podcast and reading the piece. But Anna, let's start from the very beginning. So where did you get the idea from? How did it come to you? It was quite simple, really. If you cast your minds back to March 2020, when we all knew that we were heading into this great period of of unknown and it was quite frightening. We just didn't know what lockdown was then and how it would make us feel to not be able to do the things we do and see our friends go out, certainly to concerts and things, but just to be able to see each other. Um, So I think everybody was looking around thinking, well, this is going to be strange. How can I turn it into a positive experience on my own terms? as well as obviously caring deeply about our families and anybody directly affected by being ill. And I I kind of looked around my living room and thought, well, I know other people are learning new languages and musical instruments and doing incredibly impressive DIY projects and things. Mm. But I kind of want something that is easy to do and that I always want to do, but don't perhaps make time for. So in the room I'm in now, I literally, my eyes fell upon the corner where I keep my vinyl. Um, so as you say, I've got just around about 300 LPs. I've got a bunch of singles and 12 inches as well, which I'm now playing too. Um, and I just saw, saw them and thought, well, hang on. I absolutely love music. I always have. I've been collecting music since I was in my teens. But do I make enough time to actually sit and play it and listen properly and really think about, you know, all the memories that, that, that certain records unleash? Of course I don't, because in normal life we rush about. I'm always commuting or I'm out and about or I'm, I don't actually listen to the things I have in my living room. And you could apply this as well to like books and films, all sorts of things we have in our homes that we don't necessarily make time for. So, yeah, simply I thought, well, that would be easy, wouldn't it? I'll just play a record kind of at least one a day 
um, possibly more. I, I was at you know the start playing more than one a day easily, and then make a little diary entry. So, what does the record remind me of what does it sort of um, trigger in my memories but also how is it fitting in with the world I'm in now so it's sort of part diary of 2020 or the, the lockdown year and then part memories of you know 20 years ago and in some cases yeah and was there any sort of little rituals or rules about you know how or when to listen um, both at the outset and that maybe emerged as you were doing it the only rule I gave myself was that I really wasn't allowed to skip anything, even if I absolutely thought I wasn't in the mood for it. So I think in normal life, you kind of choose music according to kind of, yeah, your mood. Whereas I had this rule of, nope, if it's next, and, and I have my records ordered kind of um, chronologically, not particularly accurately. There are there are sort of quirks in it. But so as I move through time, essentially, starting with, you know, very old music, and moving right up to the present day, I just thought, even if I don't think I want to hear this now, I have to. <laughs> and I think that's that little bit of discipline and that ritual made it more of a project and more of a kind of um, an interesting um, sort of experience of the mind, because it's amazing how you don't think you're in the mood for something and then it's playing and you're absolutely in the mood for it. Mm. So music has an, a, a very special quality even if you're in a really grumpy state of mind, suddenly a piece of music, a record can take you away from that moment and, and unleash a different feeling in you. It's amazing. Mm. Do you have any memories of specific albums that really shifted your mood? Do you mean during the last year or yeah, ever? No, just these, um, sorry, yes, as you, as you were doing the, yeah. the projects, you mentioned there were some times where you didn't feel in the mood for something and, you know, it was that album's time, so you put it on. Which were the ones that were, where there was, you know, the biggest contrast between your mood at the time versus, you know, what you thought the album was going to give you and then what happened when you were listening? So there's probably two that spring to mind um, and they're both albums I love. So it's no surprise that I enjoyed them. But the first is um, Dennis Wilson, who's one of the Beach Boys, who was a kind of a rather lost figure. If you read about him, he sort of went his own separate way from the Beach Boys. He had lots of mental health issues. He was he, he was an alcoholic. He had a lot of struggles, but he made this incredible soulful solo album. Um, which I, when I got to in, in the sort of, I suppose I must have been in the 60s at the time, so sort of early on in the whole thing, I just felt I'm not quite emotionally ready for it because I know it's amazing, but it's kind of Tuesday afternoon. I've got a gap between meetings or something. It didn't feel like the right time to put it on. And yet I did it because of my own imposed rules. And I just went into this wonderful world of kind of, you kind of can feel his emotions, but also the climate that he was in. He was in this kind of strange um, Californian world of misfits. And he'd been involved with some weird characters and had fallen into sort of strange habits and was drinking all day and his, was not in touch with the rest of the band. And, and somehow or other, um, I just was stood here listening. So I'd gone over to the record player, hit play. I was stood back at my, nearly at my desk. And I just cried. I was like, hang on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I didn't expect to be so immediately gripped by this music. And yet I was. And um, it, it's, it's, the, it's one song particularly called River Song. And it's like a gospel epic. So it's got all the harmonies that you associate with the Beach Boys. But with this sort of 
soulful, almost, um, yeah, a gospel, um, a sort of a religious quality to it without being religious that suddenly I was like, wow, this has punched me in the gut. And um, so that was a probable, you know, a, a turning point in the way I felt about how I would then write about things. Mm. Um, the, the other one um, is very simple, and that's Kate Bush. I love Kate Bush so much. She's amazing. Everything she did from being a teenager all the way, the way through to her more recent stuff is just incredibly, again, heartfelt music that comes from a very personal place. So when it came to playing The Hounds of Love, which is probably the most famous Kate Bush album, I almost felt, oh, it's too soon to play this. Oh, I'm not in the right reverential state. I have to kind of have a more of a ceremonial, you know, pulling of the vinyl out of the sleeve before I just can't just chuck it on as I've been doing with other albums. Um, but as as we've been saying, I, I got to that point in time and um, and I just had to hit play. And again, it might not have been the perfect time in my life and day to to be hearing that music but it was amazing and again it just it just took me out of what I was worrying about that day. Mm. I'm just going to quickly read an extract of something that you wrote in the article so you said I'm often puzzled by friends and family recalling detailed accounts of things that happened decades ago that I can't remember yet here leaning over the turntable something's changing every record is a door and behind each one is a tunnel to a different time and place. I love this description so much and it's it's so true and I was wondering did any of the songs or albums bring back memories that you didn't realize you still had Thank you for reading that no I I it's exactly how it felt and and yes totally um certain albums um so in a sense the ones that weren't my absolute favorites there were more albums that I picked up in my life through other people also or stolen from my dad in some cases that they unleashed hidden memories so particularly of my parents and of growing up and little things that I suppose don't really seem like big deals but the fact that my dad was a real music fan and and, and is still a music fan and has lots of music so how do I put it nicely? It's sort of, if, if your partner is really into something, you kind of feel like that's their thing. I've got to find something else. So my mum, therefore, although she clearly loves music and still does, she was a bit, I suppose, squashed by his huge, huge music passions. And yet listening to Simon and Garfunkel, you know, not particularly trendy choice, um, but what wonderful melodies and harmonies they, they produce. But listening to that early on again, I was just remembering my mum actually putting a record on the turntable and, and, and my mum being the one introducing a very young version of me to music and my sisters. Um, and I found that really amazing. I'd completely forgotten that actually it was a real novelty as a child for my mum to actually say, here, let's put this record on, whereas my dad was always playing music. So things like that, um, other really simple things like just remembering certain um, furnishings in my house when I was probably about four. So I could suddenly see the curtains and the curtains were sort of brown and orange William Morris um, leaves. And and I, I said to my mum, did we have curtains that were sort of basically some leaves that swirled around and were predominantly brown? And she was like, yeah, yeah, we did. Absolutely. In the living room at, at, um, in, in your first home. So, you know, it's amazing that music can sort of not just bring back huge emotional moments in your life but really granular detail as well. Mm. 
And you mentioned that in the article, you, there was sort of a quote from from an expert on how music brings back specific visual images and emotion. Is that something that you were very much aware of or were you sort of, you know, you realised it was happening and so you then researched a bit more about the science behind that? Yeah, it's the latter. So um, interestingly, it came through one of the images in the piece you mentioned, the, the piece I wrote for, for BBC News. Uh, there's a photo of myself as a student um, in, a, in a disco in, in, in kind of just dancing with my friends. And the person who took that photo is actually she works in psychology. She's um she's she's written lots of papers. And so in order to get you know permission to use the image, I had messaged her. She's a friend of mine from Leeds University. And I said to her, Hi Tony, um, I'm gonna use this this photo. It's a bit random, I know, but it's for a piece I'm writing, which is essentially about music and memory. Um, do you mind me using it? And and that was that. And she replied very quickly to say, Absolutely, of course, use the photo. But but this sounds really fascinating. And in my field of work, psychology, I have, you know, encountered some fascinating studies on, on what it is about music more than other senses that connect you perhaps with your past or your memories or emotion. And so it was through her that I found that um, particular piece of scientific research that I, I read and I thought, well, I've got to include this now. This is absolutely fascinating. It's only because I've been doing this myself that I realised there's a whole school of thought around the connection between music and, and memory. Mm. And could you tell us a bit more about what you discovered there? Well, I, I won't claim to be any great expert, but it's it's that particular moments in your life so music has a quality of reconnecting you with an autobiographical moment so if as a young person you're particularly listening to something when when you're going through I don't know, a relationship or your first time away from home it's almost as if by listening to certain music at that time you're you're recording it you're you're, you're putting it into a kind of permanent form in your mind that means that that music holds the key to kind of unlocking a memory. I mean, that's what it is in my case. I know that people who've had um, strokes and are trying to relearn language and things like the, the, the brain function associated with language, I know that from reading around this topic, again, music has been very helpful in reconnecting people, sort of rewiring their heads a little bit, or in probably better to say, finding the pathways that are already there that the stroke has damaged so through music people can remember lots and lots of things about their own lives which I thought was absolutely wonderful and I have to say I would love to know more. Yeah it's really interesting because I, so I, in January I did a um, 30 years in 30 days wake up and dance challenge where every morning uh, we danced to three songs from a different year so we started in 1970 and, and went all the way up and what I found was really interesting is that I because I, I was telling the people who, who were joining me in the project you know feel free to send me song requests and almost every time I received a song request it wasn't just can you please play this song for this year it was, can you please play this song for this year? Because it reminds me of that time I was a teenager and I first heard it on the bus and realised that maybe I wasn't so alone. Or it reminds me of when, you know, we used to go dancing on a mum's night out. There was always a, and this is what it reminds me of. And so it, it was really 
special because I just felt like it wasn't just coming together and dancing, but it was also, I was just getting these snippets of people's lives. And it was really interesting to see how emotionally attached they were, especially to certain decades. And it was usually sort of the requests would come through from if that person was 20 in that decade, that's when they'd send me the song request. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite often where we form some of our most significant musical memories. Absolutely. That sounds really wonderful. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think the fact that um, you often feel that there's some no-go zones with music, like, oh, I can't listen to that song. It reminds me of that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that time, that upsetting thing or whatever. But interestingly, and, and like I was saying with my project, the fact that I sort of forced myself to hit play on things, in the end, even things that are very emotional and maybe remind you of an upsetting time, there's something really joyous about hearing it because it's about it's both acknowledging that that reminds you of a sad time or a, or or a relationship that's gone or whatever but it's also remembering that that was you it was you that was having that feeling in that time you can like almost reclaim a bit of emotion mm. as yours and and the fact that yes i for one reason or another when we're in our teens and 20s we're at an emotional sort of heightened state aren't we more than ever i mean you know, I hope the albums that I've bought this year will mean lots to me in 20 years from now. But I, I suspect the ones from my teens and 20s will always have that real high emotional value to them. Um, and it's just something, I suppose, about the the teenage brain and the um, the young adult experience, isn't it? Of of everything's new. Every everyone you meet, all the all the connections you're making, it's kind of for the first time. So it makes sense that the music of that era sort of glues it all into your memories. Um, but yeah, I, th I think I think all music has the capacity to, to to help kind of, you know, connect us with people, places, memories. And I'm, I feel blessed that I've got that kind of brain, actually. It's a really nice thing that I know works for me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the article that there were some days in which you danced. So I'm curious to know what songs and albums made that happen. <laughs> oh, dear. This is going to get embarrassing. But <laughs> yeah, um, I'll tell you a really funny time. And it's a very kind of I hope some um, I imagine at some of your events, these tunes have been played. But we've got this LP that's called Dance 91. OK, it's house music and sort of um, big club hits of, of 91. It just happens to be really, really good throughout, you know, maybe maybe to a certain generation. But every tune is what we would call a banger, right? Mm. So it, it was, it just, I was playing, I got into the 90s, I think, uh, would have been in the summer or sort of as we were a little bit between lockdowns. So, um, yeah, so it would have been maybe August 2020. And that album cropped up in, and, and it was really filthy. The physical vinyl was all dusty and horrible. So I got out my, you know, cleaner and, and made it made it playable and we just myself my partner my daughter who is 13 and does not know these tunes uh, we were just hilariously dancing around the living room and then into the garden and our, our neighbors were probably highly amused by what was going on like this 90s house music party but just little moments like that but because we were in lockdown together and we hadn't seen anyone we kind of went a bit nuts, um, and it, but it felt like a party, even though it was just the three of us. So that's definitely a dancing moment. Um, I'm sure there are others. My sister came and visited us 
at that time she was living nearby and we had sort of socially distant discos in our garden together <laughs> so so that was one um I'll, I'll think there may be others um it's interesting you mentioned that your daughter was joining in and she hadn't heard that sort of 90s house music before do you think this project will influence her taste in music was there anything that she was hearing for the first time that she thought oh wow that's really good and, and maybe has kept listening I really hope so um although there's always that thing isn't there that your parents music is just it's it you like it but it's theirs so you need to go off and find your own thing which I totally get and is what I did um she really liked the Beatles um she had heard them before but I think she actually listened to the lyrics more closely mm-hmm. And all the really psychedelic lyrics, so <laughs> I'm the walrus. She was really kind of like had a puzzled look on her face. Like, really? They wrote these words? I'm like, yep, they did. This is this is why they were a pioneering band. You know, they might seem establishment to us now, but they did things that, that were completely new in music, um, production wise and lyric wise. What was the other one? Oh, the other day I heard her mobile phone alarm go off and it was um, trash by no hang on it was beautiful ones by suede mm. I was like hang on how come you've got a suede track as your morning alarm and she was like oh I just found it when I was looking for things other than like the, the iPhone standard like sounds that you can have as your alarm so I was like wow she's kind of that is that's like me so that's like me putting some quite alternative band from the late 60s on Mm. my alarm clock when I was 13 like that's quite a long way back in history for her and she said she just liked it so I I hope that some of my influence is seeping in and I'm of course always saying you've got to look after my records in the future they've got to stay stay as one collection please (laughs) (laughs) there's something that you said earlier that reminded me of a conversation I was having with a colleague about how the way people listen to music has evolved over time because you were saying that one of the rules you had was that you had to listen to them to the albums from start to finish and what he was saying is that he so I'm not sure how old he is um, but he's probably a couple of decades older than me and he was saying that when when he was young people would buy a record and just sit down and listen to it with a glass of wine and that is very very much changing for people of for example your daughter's generation um so i'm curious to know if i mean you're very much involved in in music and and write about it and i'm curious to know if you have have sort of seen this evolution of how we listen to music and what are your thoughts on on how that might be changing our relationship to music and what might that look like in the next couple of decades Mm, good good question yeah i mean The point being that a piece of vinyl or just an album is the artist made it to be consumed in the order it comes. So, you know, roughly 10 tracks, a side A, a side B. There's always that feeling of um, the first track has to be one that really grabs you. And maybe the start of side B is quite another single like song. So the structure of how music was presented to the public, you know, in the vinyl age, in the CD age, um, fundamentally has shifted because streaming is all about ba- making up your own playlist. You don't really need to know how the artist intended you to hear the, the tracks. You just pick the ones you like, which is very, very liberating and wonderful and creative because you make your own albums, essentially. But there's something lost as well um, in 
if you thought about it in any other way, say if it was an exhibition in a gallery and the artist has thought very carefully about what you see first and then what you go on to see mm. and and how one piece of art slash music informs the next, those things are kind of being lost. Um, and it is a shame in some instances. I, I'm, I'm also someone who streams music, absolutely. I get it. And I think it's really wonderful that people can explore lots of music very easily through streaming rather than having to have the money for albums as I always struggled with as a, as a teenager not having enough money for a new album I had to just wait whereas now you can f explore um, so I do feel um, that as again the certain little things are being lost and that's things like song titles because we don't need to s physically see the record or the tape or the CD or whatever we're less likely to remember the names of things or indeed kind of the lyrics. I mean, I suppose you sing along and, but sitting, you know, I was first buying records and, and CDs in, in the mid nineties. So as I said, I couldn't afford everything I wanted. I had to pick carefully. It bring maybe one or two home at a time. You'd sit with them. You'd read every word on the, on the sleeve. You'd know all about the artist as much as you could. And, you would be very conscious that oh, I like track two and I like track seven, wouldn't you? Whereas now it's just a bit more of a, a kind of a kind of huge, huge kind of noisy landscape of things that you like that kind of come at you randomly rather than there being a kind of sense of order. I don't know what the kind of right and wrongs are, but I imagine the sort of renaissance of vinyl that we've been witnessing and and just physical music and people wanting to go and actually have an experience, go to a gig rather than sit at home. I think that will probably keep alive that sense mm -hmm. that the artist is choosing for you to go on a journey with them and they want you to hear that first and then they want you to hear this. Um, I think that will keep it alive. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting thought around what it actually means for the way we connect with with music mm. I like what you said though about because I think in a way that that conversation I had with my colleague his his view was quite sort of nostalgic which makes sense I do think though what you said now in, in a way gives sort of the the positive side of it because it's definitely true that exploration is so much easier um mm. so certainly the way in you know things like for example Spotify's discover weekly playlist that sort of magically puts into a playlist songs that you might like and, and it's really true that for example there are so many gigs that I would never have gone to without Spotify's Discover mm. Weekly playlist so I guess it's just you know the evolution of how we listen to music and I do think it's important to be conscious of how it's changing so that mm. if there are aspects of it that we are losing to be aware of that and and find ways to sort of make up for them if that's something that's important to us. Yeah, and I think that the, the two coexist nicely, actually. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing that I've, I've said in some of my writing is that, you know, with vinyl, I've particularly kind of tried to try to just buy things I absolutely know I love because I don't want, because they're so physically large, mm. you don't want lots of things that you only half love. Whereas with the CD era, I had lots of things I'd sort of bought because someone recommended it to me or I just liked the cover, you know, quite a lot of blind buying in the past. Whereas now I feel you can listen to things, you can stream things or listen to things online and, and, and sort of understand that you love something before you invest in, say, you know, an LP is quite often £20 plus. So it's quite a big choice to make. Um, so it may take some of the romance out of vinyl buying to listen first digitally or, or to stream it first somewhere. But I think that they, they complement one another because then I know 
I'm really excited to go and get the proper vinyl version of a new album that I've already heard a couple of times on Spotify or, or wherever else. Yeah. Um, right. I'm going to jump back to your lockdown project. And yes. I have a question about the people who were around you as you were doing it. So I'm curious to know, how did you live and, and share this project, both with the people in your house and the people that you were separated from? So in my house was my, my partner, Liza, and my daughter, Frankie. And we're lucky that we've got a garden. And so our lockdown experience was, was I'm sure, very good compared to others who had less sort of freedom and space. And we would, I would initially, because Frankie was doing lockdown school, so I would put on a record as we were having lunch or in a little gap when we didn't have any meetings or she didn't have a lesson or whatever. Um, and we'd listen to them in the garden. I opened the windows where my record player is, listen to them in the garden. And lot, some of the records aren't mine. Some of them are my partner's. So um, she would step in and, and do a um, little bit of a cameo appearance on the blog. Um, Rolling Stones, uh, I think, was one of those moments. And Jimi Hendrix and what else? Um, some of the more classical music at the start. Um, so there was two voices in the blog at times. I mean, I'm like the nerd that really collects stuff. Um, but um, but that was really nice to share that. And as we said earlier, you know, to have Frankie, who's 13, kind of just sometimes look quizzical at the music and sometimes <laughs> just really enjoy it with us. Um, and then um, my dad is a real big music fan and, and has been, you know, all his life. He's in his 70s. So there were certain records I came upon which I would just need to text him about. So I'd, I'd ring him up and, or drop him a WhatsApp message and say, oh, I've just got to Leonard Cohen. Um, and he would we, that would trigger a conversation. And what's nice is uh, during lockdown or during the early days, it was all about the pandemic, which understandably was the, the, the main priority topic of conversation. You know, mm. how are you? Are you getting enough food delivered? Mum and dad, please don't go to the shop. Make sure that you're wearing a mask when you're going to, you know, and then the vaccine story. When, you, when can you get yours? The music was just such a lovely diversion, you know. I did want to check my parents were staying safe and, and, you know, being cautious. But I also had the the joy of just chatting about, you know, myself going to gigs with them when I was younger. Um, We all went as a family to watch Leonard Cohen, not that long ago, um, but in Leeds. Um, And of course, Leonard Cohen died recently. So, Mm. you know, what what an amazing thing to have seen him live in the UK and also with, with both parents and both my sisters so I wouldn't have that would not have been that memory wouldn't have suddenly been triggered within the pandemic year without the music taking me there yeah and do you feel like in a way this might have brought you closer with them absolutely I do yeah yeah I mentioned the thing about my mum earlier and sort of appreciating that she brought us into a cultural world as well as my dad and, and and that she had her own she loved you know certain um musicians that that you know perhaps I hadn't appreciated were her thing more than my dad um and yeah yeah my I love chatting to my parents about music they've been so sweet about my writing as well um and and of course by writing about music they're and them reading the piece I wrote and um they're learning things about me of course because they have no idea about what I was up to <laughs> age like 16 to 25 whatever probably since so they've learned about me as well and I think it's really nice. I, yeah, it's, it's it's been really, really lovely. And, and it's definitely been an extra way of communicating. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I feel very much the same way about how lockdown has really actually brought me a lot closer with 
not just my parents, but many of my family members or friends. And particularly with my parents, my mum always wanted to join one of my events, but she lives in Rome and I live in London, so she couldn't come. Whereas all of a sudden when it was happening online, we were dancing together every day and sharing something that was non-verbal and so very powerful. And then it was interesting when we were doing the, the 30 Years and 30 Days project, a lot of the music from the 70s was music that I I learned to love from from her. But then as time went on, then she she discovered music through me. And I remember I did uh, I did an event where I can't remember the theme now, but it, there was a lot of Beyonce songs and mum mm-hmm. had never heard of Beyonce. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Uh, so it was just it's just been so beautiful to be able to to explore music and dance together in, in very much a way that wouldn't have been accessible to us without this whole strange situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, you know, we in my family, we did the obvious thing of having a quiz now and again, which, you know, I know we've all got bored of that now, but it meant that my my uncle, who lives in London, but rarely goes up north to see his brother, my dad, you know, we were all, just, you know, we, we did one on Friday this week as well, um, just to see each other. It's, it's nice to be on the phone, and but to actually just see each other. And it, whatever the thing is that is the excuse for having a family Zoom or, or some sort of online get together it's just that's just the vehicle by which you get there isn't it and I have to say that the point of the non-verbal thing is lovely isn't it because you rarely do things with people who are not around you that aren't just chat or Mm. or messaging um hence I suppose why quizzes became a thing but yeah like having seeing my dad interacting with his brother and my mum giggling in the background and and there being lots of little exchanges between us daughters you know on the messaging thing as well like it's actually a new way of, of, of existing with people who can't be together, isn't it? Um, and while there's loads of downsides to it, because we just want to give each other a hug and two, two-dimensional digital life, it can get wearing. I also think it's given us a new, a new era and that, that we'll hang on to the good bits of, won't we, going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I have a final curiosity that is quite a jump in topic, but I'm just curious to see what it brings out. So for anyone listening, Anna's journalism career stretches far beyond music, and she led the audience engagement for the um, Death in Ice Valley podcast. As an outsider, I've been learning a bit more about your work, and it seems like you have quite a strong element of sort of community engagement and, and bringing people together. And I'm just curious to know, where did that come from and does does music play any role in that wow it's a really good observation thank you for um for, for bringing up death in ice valley because it's one of my kind of most i'm most proud of that project it was really amazing i was very privileged to 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 be involved and it was in itself a collaboration between us at the bbc and the norwegian broadcaster called nrk um so yeah I, that was probably the beginning of so in, in digital terms, I've always been interested in how you can use um, digital tools, social media to make journalism better. Mm-hmm. So when I was at Channel 4 News, we did a project around disability and it was called No Go Britain. And it was about how, you know, fundamentally, if you are uh, disabled or um, have a, a, a visual impairment or anything that is, is not necessarily overt, that you in your life, when you're traveling around the UK, 
are at a great disadvantage and there's, there's loads of things that travel companies were not doing so assisting people and helping people when they got to their destination so we did this whole investigation into and it, it was kicked off by tanny gray thompson the paralympian and it was um essentially rather than the usual form of journalism which is see that there's something that needs addressing hold people to account and get lots of kind of voices into a studio perhaps and and and, and try and um change something for the better through journalism make things more equal we did want to do that but we also wanted to have the actual audience set the agenda so for mm. that project we it was in the early days of Twitter and we had people all over the country who had some sort sort of disability tweeting their journeys, like simple stuff. Like I'm just going to school, or I'm going to work and um, I meant to have someone assist me getting on and off the bus, but it hasn't happened today. You know, simple stories that by themselves wouldn't necessarily add up to like a big news story. Mm. But as a community of people all experiencing this thing, it became way more powerful by bringing in all these digital voices. So. Um, yeah, the the upshot of that project was that indeed, like rail companies, um, uh, bus companies, they all upped their game, created a lot more clear help and signage and support, and that's made it. I hope it's still probably not perfect, but better wow. for people to travel around and have freedom and and, and independence, and, and as you know, in a Western nation with good infrastructure like the UK, shouldn't have been um, so lacking. Anyway, that was the backdrop and when we got to death in ice valley which is obviously at the bbc world service where i'm now i just saw that this story had so much more to it than audio it was like there's visuals there's lots of history there's lots of language knowledge here why don't we create a way that the audience can kind of interact with the actual journalism and potentially steer the story so and, and because it was an international sort of story, um, those, those that have listened, it's about trying to solve a mystery from 1970 of a woman who could have been a spy. She may have been working for the military, but she died in Norway in 1970. So, yeah, that was why this community idea I felt that I'd already had experience with worked. And I said, right, we're going to create a, a group. Um, into that group, we will inject all these stuff we have, photos, archive, translated bits of police files. Um, the two presenters are going to be in there talking to their audience and it's going to be really accessible. People can feel like they can shape the journalism. So we did. We had lots of people from all over the world inputting theories and helping us translate things, noticing stuff we hadn't noticed. Um, so really, it's just evolved. And I just feel that it's a good blueprint for sort of a lot of digital journalism um, and community journalism that you are you're you're more powerful when you're when you give your audience some power over the story um so yeah I, I, i'm you know it's nice that you've mentioned it and uh, i hope to do more projects in that sort of field well i'm so glad i asked you that <laughs> so very last question and i specifically uh -huh. wanted to ask out of all the vinyls that you've heard which one would you recommend people listen specifically if they want to sort of discover something that maybe might be a little bit more obscure to them, lesser known, but that you think is really worth giving a listen to? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Would you prefer a contemporary thing rather than old things? No, anyone, whichever one you think is, is most worth listening to. You can give two if that helps. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to just go for St Etienne because they are my favourite band. And I do think even though they are quite well known, they're also a little bit of a lost treasure in mainstream sort of music understanding. Um, what I love about them is that they use lots of samples and film references and it's like a patchwork of of sounds. So it's a little bit like they have poured their fandom into their music making. They themselves clearly love lots of different areas of music, 60s music, house music, funny comedy little references all over it. So the album I'd probably say is the most fun by St Etienne is, but, 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 I'm going to go for So Tough by St Etienne mm-hmm. um, as probably from we're talking 93-ish I would say um, so I didn't listen to it on the day of its release either because I was 13, 14 then um, so I would have listened to it a bit later in my teens so that's a, just an incredible sonic journey and it's and it's just lots to discover um, and then just m- more from the last year really um, I always try and keep you know my ear to the ground with new music and a lovely band called the Oriels um, from Yorkshire, from my home county. Um, they're amazing. It's beautiful, well-crafted guitar music, very uh, melodic, fantastic harmonies. Again, witty and sweet and clever. I hope that they're okay because, you know, they were taking off as a band just when lockdown hit. And I want mm-hmm. them to go out and play gigs that I can go to, but that we all can appreciate them because they're a really good band. So the Orioles, their most recent album is called Disco Valeda. So put that one on Spotify, people. Brilliant. Well, I'm really excited that we can support an emerging band in this way. Excellent. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining, Anna. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please leave a review on iTunes and share it with your friends so you can help spread the word. Thanks for listening. <laughs>